Wayne's gone. Yeah. I know. What are we going to do? I'm just kidding. He's right there. He's retired, but not. It's complicated. <laughs> Good morning. And welcome to uh, Steer Bible Church. Hey, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, so if you have your Bible, please turn there. If you don't, raise your hand. One of these good-looking gentlemen would love to give you one of our Bibles, which you're free to keep. Um, hey, uh, thank you to uh, Caleb for filling in for me last week. I actually was fully dialed in, ready to preach last week. And on Thursday, uh, I came into work, and, and I just felt a little teeny something. And of course, uh, I've heard all of these stories of, of how this little teeny something transitioned into a little teeny or something. Uh, and uh, I told Caleb, hey, just be ready because the way things are going, uh, maybe I won't feel up to it uh, to preach on Sunday. And I didn't, I felt I could have preached two years ago uh, in a non-COVID world. I would have preached, uh, but in the new world we're in, I just figured I didn't want to deal with that one email that would be sent. I could tell you were sick from the pulpit. What in the world were you doing at church? So I let Caleb preach, let him deal with it. Uh, what's really good about that, though, is we are so blessed with teachers, whether it's John Drollinger or Brad Beers or Caleb or Wayne, or the list goes on and on. And um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, because we have such a great, solid roster of teachers uh, at our church, we've been asked over the years to fill the pulpit at other churches. We actually filled the pulpit at Cornerstone and Incline uh, for several months before their new pastor, who's been there for a few years now, Tony uh, Slavin, took over. Uh, and then recently, for the last, I don't know, how four, five, six months now? Almost a year, we've been filling the pulpit uh, in uh, Sierraville for the Sierraville Church for, the, like Wayne said, about the last year. And right now, Brad Beers is there preaching. John has done it. Mike Harrison has preached there. And uh, I just, hey, you just, you should be very thankful is all I'm trying to say. Uh, be, so uh, there, in fact, actually, when um, I, uh, we've had that church out there ask if a few of our guys wanted to take over, uh, and that hasn't happened yet, so. Not that we're trying to get rid of anybody, but Wayne's available. <laughs> Last I heard. Um, so pretty soon we're going to be in the book of Haggai. Uh, and so we normally sell in the bookstore these ESV journals for you if you want them. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> for purchase, it just has uh, that little minor prophet in there. I think a couple other minor prophets as well. Uh, the text is there and a place to take notes. And so we make those available for you to take notes through a series. And then after that, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark. That will wind out almost the rest of uh, the year. We actually are going to launch the Gospel of Mark at Easter time. So it'll fit perfectly in with the season. Uh, and we'll have those journals available for you as well. And so what I have been attempting to do in the last month uh, here in January at our church is just kind of reestablish, recommunicate, because there are so many new faces here, uh, new people that are here. And it's just important also, uh, there, there's a saying that vision leaks, that when you talk about who you are and, and what you are as a church, it's easy to kind of forget your identity. I don't know if you've ever felt that way as a Christian, where your identity at times is getting absorbed by all kinds of other things. And, and it's good just to reestablish and to remind ourselves of who we are and why we do what we do. And so I've been doing that uh, from Matthew chapter 28. 
uh, in regards to discipleship and what discipleship is and what it isn't and why we should be followers of Jesus and follow after the one voice of Christ. And so if you have the ability to this, uh, to this morning, turn uh, to Matthew chapter 28, go to verse 16. Uh, and as we typically do on Sundays, because we love God's word, we stand to honor God's word, to position our hearts, our minds, and our souls ready to hear from the Lord. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, And here's how we do it. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And Lord, we do ask that we would feel that presence this morning. As Matthew 28 says that you are with us all the way till the end. May we be oh so very aware that your presence is here and that you want to speak to us this morning. Help us to set aside distraction and agenda and to hear just from you. And we trust you that you will be faithful and true to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Amen. may be seated, please. Um, I shared several weeks back that several years ago, there was a movement by some church gurus that said, hey, let's let's recognize uh, the need that we need to evangelize a new culture. We We need to reach out to a new culture. And in order to do that, we we should embrace uh, being seeker-sensitive. We should be sensitive uh, to those who are seeking Jesus. And the idea of this idea of seeker-sensitiveness would be that we would would be uh, aware that people who don't know Jesus are, are, or or people who don't know Scripture are going to kind of be a a little bit taken back by some of the things that are in Scripture. So what we should do is actually on Sundays, we should avoid some of the controversial subjects that exist in Scripture so that we can evangelize and get people uh, who know Jesus to come to know Jesus. And I shared with you that, that one of the issues uh, in regards to this kind of church guru movement is that it takes out two things. One, it ignores the, the last words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. It, it kind of leaves that off to the side. Right? So Jesus is now, as he's about to ascend to the Father, after his death and resurrection, he's commissioning, if you will, his followers. He's giving them the job. What I have done, now you're going to do. I'm going to be with you, he says. But you need to go to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every gender, every person, every nook and cranny of the earth. And you need to go. And when you go, you need to teach. Notice it doesn't say smoke, lights, incredible music, incredible programs. No, 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 no. Teach. So this idea of seeker-sensitive model leaves out you've got to teach. And in order to teach, sometimes, you know, if you've ever been an educator, you know, there's topics that you got to walk through. They take a little bit more time. Uh, and, and, but we've got to be teaching. The other thing it ignores is the scripture that, that Jesus says in regards to those who we would call seeker sensitive. It's actually quite hilarious when you think about it. Because these gurus said, let's build church for seekers. 
those who've never heard of Jesus, but then Jesus comes along and says, no one, what? No one seeks after God, not one. Now, that has all kinds of biblical implications, but the, the, what he's basically saying, what Jesus is basically saying is without the intervention of Jesus, without the Holy Spirit enlightening the heart that Christ is the Messiah, no one seeks after God. I heard R.C. Sproul say it uh, when I was studying the last few weeks uh, in this message. R.C. Sproul says it really well. He says, he says, the seekers are those who've already been converted. Now you talk about being seeker sensitive, we should be sensitive to those who are already saved because once saved, you now can seek. That's the idea. The idea is that that person who before salvation is dead in their trespasses, a slave to sin, an orphan away from God, all of these visual pictures in the New Testament that exist tell us that we have no way of getting back to God unless God intervenes. And then God intervenes. That's why some of you are here this morning, by the way, because God has intervened. That's why some of you have been invited here this morning because God wants to intervene. That's why some of you had a hard time getting here this morning because Satan knew that, that, that God wanted to speak to you. And so he did everything this morning he could to get you to fight with your wife and your kids or with the guy in the street in front of you driving down Glenshire Drive. Wherever it may be, Satan has done whatever he can to keep you from worshiping Jesus this morning. But because of his intervention and his great love, you made it. Congratulations. And if you're online, you made it online too. We're happy you're tuning in. Love to see you soon, by the way. Um, and Jesus says, teach. I'm with you always. We're the seekers. And we only become seekers once the intervention of Jesus occurs. And so we pray for that intervention. And Jesus tells us to feed the sheep. He tells us to shepherd the flock, John 21, 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers and that we're to practice oversight as leaders, not by compulsion, but with a willingness to serve God, not for shameful gain as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 will say, but eagerly. Now, what we should be praying for for our leaders, what you should be praying for, for for me and the elders is a zealousness to keep preaching and keep worshiping Jesus. Like pray that for your leaders, like seriously. Like pray that God would not allow your leaders, myself included, to not grow weary while doing good. That we would teach all of scripture and not leave anything out. That we would teach the words of Jesus, and that we would hear Jesus speak. Um, <clears throat> I've missed you, Murphy. <laughs> First Kings chapter 19. Do you, if you can turn there, great. If not, I'm going to read it out loud. But I'd like you to look and see out of First Kings. This, and the reason I wanted, I wanted to, to share an illustration from Scripture that, that kind of, I think, will correlate to some of the things that you and I struggle with and, and why, why we need to be hearing from the Lord. And again, why in Matthew 28, Jesus says, you have to teach, okay? You have to teach. 
In chapter 19, in the book of 1 Kings, we are kind of in part of the story of this, this man's life by the name of Elijah. Elijah is to be preaching the word of God that he hears, but he seems to be very overwhelmed with the challenges of life. He's having a hard time. In fact, he, he literally flees to Horeb, finds himself falling asleep, and God arises him and awakens him, and God desires to speak to Elijah that Elijah will continue to speak to the nations of who God is. And so in Elijah chapter 19, as God wants to speak to him, listen to the way in which the Lord speaks. Chapter 19, verse 11. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great wind, strong, tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. We can relate to that in the mountains, huh? We had a little bit of wind in December. Some trees fall down. You remember the other big winter, what, 2017, whatever it was, 2016? And, and every tree, I think if you lived in Gateway, every tree in Gateway fell. Do you remember that? Every single tree. All that wind just blew. It was radical and it was violent and it tore nature apart. That's what's happening with Elijah here. Remember, he was asleep. He must have been aroused by all of this. Is there a voice of the Lord in the mountains and in the wind? No, the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. We just saw that recently, right? A volcano erupting in the middle of the ocean and a tsunami being called out towards California and Tonga and wherever else. But God was not in the earthquake. There was no voice. Then after the earthquake, a fire. There's another one we can relate to. You've got wind. Uh, you, you've got a fire here. We've got earthquakes. Uh, apparently, Elijah lived in California. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, after the earthquake, after the strong wind, there then was the sound of a low whisper. The Hebrew word for, for this low whisper is, is a low blowing, a calm, a stillness, silence. The word that's used here, it's almost as if, 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 the language that's used is, is if we look at it, it's not, it's not even like it's a low whisper. It's almost as if there's no sound at all. Silence. And in the silence, Elijah hears the voice of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that there have been times in my life whether it's been a decision or whether it's been a part of my life where I have felt stuck or I've wanted to move forward or or I didn't know what God wanted, but I've, I've begged, I've even pleaded, God, would you, would you speak to me? Have you ever asked God to talk? Like, Lord, I, I, know, I know that you can speak. I know that you care about my life. Would you, would you give me some kind of audible tone? I, I, I don't know about you, but I've probably prayed for earthquakes and fires and wind. Has anybody ever done that? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you to the test, Lord, and, and I'm going to go outside, and if somebody says hi to me, that means this is what you want me to do. You throw those kind of fleeces out, God. God, speak. And the reality is that we want God to speak to us, to teach us, and we would ask him to, to do it according to our own kind of, I, God, if you're going to speak, you got to do it this way. That's not how God works. In fact, Pascal, uh, he actually said this. He said, 
diversion. <laughs> he says, being unable to cure death and wretchedness and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy just not to think about such things. Right? Give me the earthquake, give me the fire, but don't give me silence. Because if in silence, I, I might hear things that don't want to hear. I, I, I've got to be patient. Another author says it like this. I, I think um, there are just so many ways the culture wants to teach you and the culture wants to speak to you and the culture wants to, to get to you. And, and listen to what this author says. He says this. When I desire the world, when I grow too busy to be alone with God, when the world in my pocket entices me more than the world of the scriptures, my soul stretches thin. It stretches thin like butter scraped over too much bread. My weakened desires take me away from God and into my phone. Like Jonah, I follow him into the Tarshish of technology. And when I set sail several times, it becomes easier and easier to go again. And harder and harder to sit with God as before. My soul fidgets. I'm anxious for something, anything to distract, entertain me. As I stick my hand again and again into my pocket for more salty snacks, and my great appetite for the great feast begins to diminish. Isn't that good? So it's just so easy. We, we don't want to think. We don't want to process. I mean, have you ever thought for a moment the incredible amount of time God has put into creating that mushy thing between your ears? No? I mean, that thing that sits between your ears is an incredible creation. Absolutely incredible. To the point where scientists don't even fully understand how it works. And God's call in Matthew 28, God's call to us as Christians, to his disciples, is to be pulled out of all of the voices of the world to listen to the only voice that matters, which is God's voice. Now, how about this? Here's why we need scripture so badly. Here's why we need to be students and learn as disciples from Jesus so badly. Because every single one of us have, have uh, what, what I would call dysfunctional voices from the past. How many of you have, have voices from the past that are dysfunctional and broken? In the first service I shared uh, a couple years ago, I did a memorial service here for a gentleman in the community. And my fifth grade teacher who hadn't seen me since fifth grade was at the memorial service. And afterwards he told someone else, I didn't have a chance to talk to him, but he told someone else, never in a million years would I would have thought Jesse Richardson would be doing that. I had voices in the past that told me that I, I couldn't learn and I couldn't read so well and I, I wasn't great socially and I didn't know how to take responsibility for things. Those voices, we all have them, whether it's from dads or moms or aunts or uncles or grandmas and grandpas or friends or bosses. Dysfunctional voices in the past telling you who you are, trying to mess with your identity, trying to get to you. We all have them. You know what else we have? All of us have manipulative voices from within and from without. Right? The Bible literally says that your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? 
It says that there's a part of you that is fleshy. There's a part of you, even though you're born again, there's a part of you that rages against your spirit as your spirit rages against your flesh. And you can end up having these manipulative voices inside your own heart that tell you you're not good enough. You're not sufficient. You're not doing a good enough job. You are a sinner. You should feel bad. You should feel filled with shame. You should just be a nobody. That's what you are. All of us have those. You know what else we have? If we don't have that, we have a culture and people from the outside constantly telling you who you should be and how you should live, yeah? Conform, 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 conform. Be like everybody else. You know, I've been in the last uh, probably six months or so, maybe longer, I've probably had seasons of it as a pastor. Do you know how often I hear, how often I hear from individuals in our congregation, how many different opinions I get from our congregation on how I should preach, what I should preach, when I should preach it, when I shouldn't preach. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you read this? Have you seen this internet site? Have you listened to this podcast? Have you listened to that podcast? It's enough to drive me bananas. And at the end of the day, if I'm not careful and I listen to that voice and I listen to this voice and I listen to that voice and I listen to this voice, I lose the voice of the Father. I want to hear from God. The worship team put Marley on the spot here. She's had kind of a hard week, she told me. And now she told you. (laughs) And this morning during worship, first of all, What an amazing job they've done. Leading us to the Father. Reminding us of who Jesus is. And as they were practicing this morning, I could tell they were a little flustered and I I just yelled at all of them. What did I yell? Audience of one. Audience of one. You know, as much as I want to preach to you, it's not about preaching to you as much as it is preaching for my Father. And likewise, For you, in your walk with Christ, you're gonna have these voices from the past trying to dig up stuff that's no longer true of your identity. You're gonna have voices around you, husband, wife, maybe even your children. That's always the best when your 11-year-old is telling you how you should father. You're gonna have these voices. But the one voice we need is divine revelation from God. Right, as I said to one of my friends earlier this week, I don't want to hear about what you feel, and I want to hear what God has to say to you from the Word. I want to hear from the Word. And so the last time I preached, which is a couple weeks ago, I I tried to give you some some takeaways of why, why you should be listening to the one voice, to the one teacher, that is Christ. Right? The, the greatest thing I can say to you from this holy sacred desk, as Wayne has called it over the years, is for you to take everything that I have said, everything that I, uh, I have proclaimed from here, and to take it back between you and God and the Holy Scriptures and to compare and agree where Scripture agrees and to just take my opinion for what it is. It's my opinion. You know you're going to get, when a preacher preaches, you're always going to get a little bit of his opinion. You know that, right? 
I mean, I don't care who he is. You're going to get a piece of him out there. And you may like that or you may not. I was reading actually a few weeks ago uh, about um, visitor retention for churches. And it said, when people are visiting your church, for the first 10 minutes of you preaching, <laughs> they're just trying to figure out if they like you or not. I mean, like, whether or not you're, you're, I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons for it, but if you're visiting this morning, you decide in the first 10 minutes whether I'm for you or not, which means at this point, you've either checked out, walked out, or you're tuned in. I don't know. Maybe you need, I don't know. There's just too many voices, and so I'm trying to, to get us back to that. This is why we need to listen from the Father. Uh, the first two from last week, or two weeks ago, if you weren't here, number one, the immutableness of God, that he's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's the same today as he was yesterday, and he'll be the same tomorrow. There's consistency in God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Right? God's consistent. You're going to wake up one day, and you're going to feel different, and you wake up another day, and you're going to feel different, right? You're an inconsistent person. God is not. The second one I gave you is that Jesus promises to give us blessings and not paychecks. He operates with us out of grace, not because we've earned anything, because we know we've never earned anything. It's all been free gifts. I want to continue in that vein this morning of reminding us of these promises that God gives us of why we should continue to learn from the singular voice of Jesus, from his word. Um, Turn to John chapter 17 and go to verse 20. These are the final moments of Jesus' life, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the text. And Jesus is going to be praying for his disciples as well as the future church. So John chapter 17, verse 20. And my point, this is the third point. So if you, you, you're a note taker and you like that kind of stuff, Jesus is immutable, always the same, promises to give blessings, not paychecks. And this is where we're picking up this morning, number three. And here's the first point, which is the third point from last or two Sundays ago. I got to keep remembering I wasn't here last week. Jesus promises to see us as he sees his son, or rather, another better way to say it, God the Father sees us the same way he sees his son. John 17 Verse 20, he's praying. Hey, this, is, this is one of his last prayers. So it's an important prayer. Lord, my prayer, he says, is not for them alone. Who's them? No. It's the disciples. It's the 11 that have remained. So he's making a point in this paradox of time and space where God is saying in John chapter 17, my prayer is not for my disciples alone, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. There's so, much good, there's so much good news in here. Number one, Jesus prays for the current church. Number two, he's praying for you, the church that exists today, and he's letting us know that we exist today. Why? Because of the message of the disciples that were given them. And what's cool here is the message of the disciples were given is the exact same message of Jesus. He encompasses it. Right? If I said, I'm teaching you my thing, that, that should be insufficient. 
and said, I'm teaching you what Jesus is teaching you. It's also my thing. It's his thing. It's our thing. And he's teaching it and he's praying it. And what does he pray for? Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just are you, as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. If you're wrestling with your identity, take this verse and tattoo it to your brain. Because this is who you are. Right? So my wife, um, she homeschools all four of our children, which means she needs a tremendous amount of hugs and thank yous and, and I mean, she, cause she, it's so hard to do homeschool, let alone to homeschool kids between the ages of five and 11. Four kids, ages five, seven, nine, and 11. The five-year-old requires a, a very different curriculum than the 11-year-old. I don't know if you knew that or not. 11-year-olds are a little bit further on than five-year-olds. And in order to do this, my wife did some great research to find out the right kind of program we should use. So we use a program that, that uh, supplements some videos for our kids. And in order to play these videos and to have uh, the applications and all that, we had to purchase some uh, tablets, some, some iPads to make them work. We initially, it's just the journey of parenthood. We initially tried doing it with Kindles, only to find out Kindles aren't as good as iPads. They don't work, so we wasted our money. And uh, so we got these iPads, and, and all four of the kids have iPads, and, and we're trying to keep them all organized. And with the, all of these iPads and all the iPhones in the house and all the all this stuff, right, the, the kids literally lose their cords to charge the iPads all the time. So the other day, one of the kids loses their cord and another kid had it and they were, began to argue about whose cord it was and it turned into a big ordeal. And in the midst of all of this attitude, one of the iPads broke. The joy of parenting. It's okay. It's only worth several hundred dollars. So what I did is I ordered new cords, new power blocks, and I stole our label maker from the office. And I brought the label maker home. And in that label maker, I typed out all four of our children, their names. And I cut those names and I took the sticker and I put it on the cord and I put it on the power block because you know those things come apart. So I had to put it on both. And I rallied all the kids over. Come on over. Okay, whose is this? It says Peyton. That's right. Is it Jolie's? No, that's Peyton's. Okay, here, Peyton. Whose is this? That's David's. Is it Peyton's? No. Okay, David's. Here's yours, David. They're all standing there. <laughs> this is the best part of parenting. With their stupid cords in their hands, looking at me as I'm, as I'm emphatically, passionately explaining, this is David's, not yours. <laughs> right? Here, the reason I sh I'm sharing that is because when, when this verse says that we're one, the way that it's saying this is it's saying God the Father, as he labels Jesus, he also labels you. 
Every label you would print out and put on Jesus, holy, righteous, filled with justice, sinless, all of those things, if you were to label them and feel confident and comfortable to put them on Christ, what this verse is saying, those labels are true of you too. It isn't just David's, right? It's not just Jesus. This isn't just for Jesus. This is for you as well. I label you the same way I label my son. And it gives us, has three implications. A legal implication, a positional implication, and a biological one. Legally, legally, when he says we are one, he's saying you have the same legal rights as Jesus. If you were in a court of law and they were trying to divide the spoils and the inheritance of the father, the inheritance would be as equally yours as it is Christ. Come on. Come on. Amen. I mean, this is, this is like, like amazing stuff. Legally, it's yours. This is why Romans chapter 6 says it like this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ Jesus' death? That means the death of Christ is your death. That's why we don't fear death. That's why Paul says, that's why Paul compares death to a bee sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? This is why in a pandemic, we as Christians can walk confidently because we are not as confident, born again, sealed by the Holy Spirit Christians ever should we ever be afraid of passing from this life to the next because the next life is the next life. That's the life. That's what he's saying. So we follow and want to learn from Christ and we want to uh, fulfill that, the great commission because we're labeled the same way legally as Jesus is. It's also positionally, literally. Another way to say it is literally, he is with you and you are not of this world. Like literally, he's with you. The Christians who, who have the most impact in culture are those who are ever aware of the ever presence of God. He's always with you. And then biological, what do I mean by that? Uh, it, you, can, it, you can feel it, and it's living, and it's organic. So I did some math uh, to sh as an illustration. My wife doesn't even know this, but we have been married for roughly 158,000 hours. <laughs> did you know that? That breaks down <laughs> to just under 6,600 days. You're welcome. <laughs> so stupid. As I've known my wife for 18 years last month, after 18 years, I can tell you this organic side of this relationship because it's the marriage is the image in this earth that Jesus has given us to see how our relationship with Christ works. Right. 
So when you look at all of these dynamics within marriage, there are so many carryovers into a relationship with Christ. Jesus is the groom and we as the church are the bride. And though we're married to Christ and we encounter Christ, the reality is in this biological relationship, whether it's 158,000 hours or whether it's 24 hours or whether it's 10,000 hours, whatever it may be, you're going to organically continue to grow in that relationship the same way I have with my wife. I absolutely love Tim Keller's illustration on marriage when he talks about this. Uh, the thing he says, and it's one of those kind of teacher kind of moments that gets people thinking. The thing he says when he talks about marriage, is he says, first of all, uh, if you're thinking about getting married, if you're single this morning, or if you are married, you need to be aware of one intrinsic and true fact. You never marry the right person. It's one of those statements that if you've never heard it before, you, you, right, you kind of go, wait a minute. Because culture always tells you there's the one true guy out there. There's one true girl. You just got to find your love, mate. You fall from the sky. Right? <laughs> and then he goes on and he says, he says, yeah, you, he says, yeah, you think about it. You never marry. And he says, and, and if, 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 if for some reason you married the right person, give it time, they'll change. <laughs> And anyone who's been married, anyone who's been married more than five years, 100% agrees with me. If you disagree with me, you're not married or even married less than five years. And the point to that illustration is the same in our relationship with Jesus. We're going to continue to be discovering, continuing to be learning. Every one of us, here, I don't care what the message is that's being preached. I don't care what song is being sung. When you tap into the spirit of God, you will learn something from someone every time. Even if, it's to, even if it's learning how not to do something. But in order to do that, you have to humble yourself and become teachable. You have to let down your guard to a certain degree and allow the word of God to start getting into areas of your life that if you're quite honest, is uncomfortable. Right? But, but, but it's worth it. Because we have that same label that Jesus has. And what's beautiful about this, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. That's number three. Let me give you number four of why we should be pursuing and running after Christ. It's not just because he promised to see us as he sees his son, but it's also because he is so faithful at never throwing our failures or our shortcomings in our, faith, in our faces either. He's faithful. Look at Psalm 103. I'll explain that picture. I, I'm, I told you I'm out of order, um, which, which is, gives me freedom, and I, I, I need that right now. So Psalm 103, verse 10. I want you to see something up front in Psalms, and then I want you to see the end part that backs up this idea of Jesus isn't throwing stuff in your face. Psalm 103, verse 10. Look at the first part. He, it's capitalized, God. Jesus. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Up front, I just want you to see something up front. Right up front, Jesus, God, in his sovereignty as he writes this text, does not kind of obscurely overshadow or ignore two realities. One, you could say, 
one reality, your depravity. He doesn't shy over the fact your sin is real. It's there. He doesn't call it stuff. He doesn't call it some other synonym. The word we use in the Bible from God is, see, that's how popular it is. Like five people want to say it. (laughs) Sin. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, the things we've done wrong. That's right up front. He doesn't shy away from your human fallibility. But then he gives us the meat of the reality of us as Christians, and then he'll give us more of the front side of of being real with our sins. So let's read the rest. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him or revere him for, and then he anchors it, right? Have you ever heard of the truth sandwich? It's usually like you give him the hard stuff, you give him the good stuff, and then you end with the hard stuff. That's exactly what this verse is. It's this grace sandwich, right? Here's the hard stuff. Here's the good stuff. Here's the hard stuff. Hard stuff, you're a sinner and you have iniquities. Good stuff, your sin is as far as from the east as the west. Bad stuff, He knows your frame and that you are but dust. He doesn't hold it against us though. He knows your dust. He knows you were created from dust. He knows you're a sinner. He knows you have transgressions, but he chooses when you have placed your faith in Christ, he chooses to take your sin and toss it as far as the east as the west. East, west, if I'm right. Why is that important? Now, I know that there are people out there who believe the earth is flat. (laughs) Who? Please, (laughs) there's one or two of you in the room. Do not email me. Do not write me. This is not a conversation I want to have. But in his sovereignty, there's a place in Isaiah that actually talks about the world being round. And that talks about the firmament. And there's all these places that literally talk about before we even knew that the earth was round, there is a lot of text in the Bible that says the earth is round. I think this is one of them. Because in his sovereignty, again, as God has written this text for us on behalf of the psalmist, for our behalf, notice he doesn't say your sin as far as the north is from the south. Why? Because if we started on our journey right now to the north, we would all end up where? North Pole. Well, if we traveled here to the south, where would we all end up? South Pole. And if you're at the South Pole and you start heading your way up north, you're going to end up North Pole. What's interesting about the east and the west is it doesn't have the same kind of anchoring as the north and the south. If you head east, guess how long you're going east? See, if the earth was flat, you'd fall off the edge. So don't send me an email. And if you head west, how long will you head west? Right? You're going west until you decide to go east, and you're going east until you decide to go west. The point being is that no place does your sin, your shame, and your guilt ever intersect. You want to know why? Because all that stupid stuff you did, all that stupid stuff you're doing, all that stupid stuff you're going to do, unless I not be biblical, all that sin you did, all that sin you're doing, 
all that sin you're going to do is somewhere in a grave in Jerusalem. And if that doesn't encourage you, and if that doesn't help you walk in confidence, I've got no other good news for you other than the reality that the old man, the old self, the old sinner, the one that the world wants to shun and push away, God has embraced you and all your fragility, and he's made you into a new creation, a new creature. I don't know how many of you noticed when you came in this morning. Do you see the car out front? Yes. It's all dented and broken. We did that just so you would know we want all broken people here. It's a sign. It's a sign. It's not true. <laughs> One of our high school kids got in an accident and they haven't been able to tow it yet. Jesus promises to never throw that stuff in your face. And the reason he, he tells us later, well, not later, I'm sorry, actually prior to this, it just a few verses earlier. A few verses earlier in Psalm 103, before he gets to that verse 10, listen to what he says in, in verse 103, verse 8. This is, this is actually echoing kind of back to a certain degree to Exodus when God first describes who he is. He gives us a description of who he is. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, and here's the word, steadfast love. Everyone say hased. You're all Jewish now. That is the word that's used in this verse for God's steadfast love. One author defines this hased in this way. The consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our Father God. It is this love demonstrated through the life and death of our Savior Jesus Christ, which has shaped our lives and made us who we are today. A people, this is the definition of who we're supposed to be, a people filled with joy and confidence, who know the source of life and who are living the way life was meant to be lived. In Exodus, if you remember, when we walked through that series, we came to a place where God told Moses, this is the way in which you build the tabernacle, which is going to be a, a foreshadowing of how you build the temple. And literally what God basically says throughout the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, descriptions into Hebrews, things like that, is that, that the, the tabernacle and the temple all are just shadows, pictures, a Polaroid paragraph, a, a photograph, if you will, of what heaven's going to be like. So when you walk into the temple, all of the gold and all of the painting and all of the, the architecture and everything that's there, whether it's in the temple or the tabernacle, all, all are echoing, all are silently screaming to a certain degree, if you will, this is the kingdom of God. And likewise, as Christians, this is why I love this quote at the end, when we think about the hased, the love of God, which drives us to want to learn from Jesus, that last line is the kicker that we would have joy, that we would have confidence, we would know the source of life, and because we know those things, we would live life the way it was meant to be lived. 
And if you remember in some of the other texts I read, it says, so the world will know. So the world will know. When the church is portraying what the kingdom of heaven is like, a lost and dying world wants to be a part of it. So when we go back to this idea of discipleship and we go back to the idea of what drives a church to really grow and to be what God wants it to be, we teach the word of God in every facet, whether it's offensive or not, and the byproduct is you're going to look radically different than the rest of Facebook and the rest of Tinder and the rest of Instagram. And the world's going to hate you. And at the same time, the world's going to want to come and be a part of what you have here. They're going to want it. My wife and I had dinner with the gentleman and his wife the, uh, the other day. They come to Sierra Bible Church. The wife is a believer and the husband isn't quite there yet. And he said to me, they've been coming for about, for a while now. I mean, I don't want to give too much info away, but this, these were his words at dinner. To me and Brad, Brad Beers, we're sitting there, right? We're, we're both elders and Brad's got his education and, and you know, I'm a lead guy. And, and so here's this guy who's wrestling with Christianity, true or not. And his words were, uh, I want to love Jesus. I'm just not there yet. He's like, that's why I keep coming on Sunday. It was because I keep hearing you say things that I'm, I don't agree with. And then I got to go back and I got to look it up. And then I go, okay, I see now why he thinks that way. And, I, and he's starting to put pieces together. What am I sharing? What I'm sharing is the radical difference. The radical difference that makes you a Christian is what saves people. Amen. It's not compromising. It's not acting like the rest of the world. And it's not shutting your mouth for goodness sake. The gospel is called good news and good news only goes out if it's proclaimed, which means it has to be preached. The Bible says literally that those come to faith because they have heard and heard the word of God preached. The negative way that the New Testament says it is how well they know unless one teaches. How will they know unless one preaches? And we must be radically different. And we must share the love of God, the great has said, and know the great has said. Which leads me to my last point. We'll close. And I, I didn't, the, this is a caveat for you just because of the way things fit in the first service and in this service. Uh, I actually showed that bubble boy deal on accident to the first service, and I never even got to it because I, it just didn't fit in. And, and then you guys saw it. You responded with some giggles. And so I figured bubble boy needs some explanation. Right? We're talking about the promises of God and why we want to follow after him and listen to his one voice. Do I need to take that off? Are you guys going to giggle the whole time it's up? Because here's the last promise. Jesus promises to carry you home. You have around you, because of the Holy Spirit, an everlasting bubble wrap that ensures that you cannot lose your salvation. You're secure. We go, well, Jesse, what, what do you mean by that? Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard, didn't I just say that? You gotta hear it. If you're not preaching, they can't hear, they won't be saved. When they heard the word of what? Not compromise, not truth, not seeker-sensitive jazz. When they heard the truth, where do you get the truth? The word. 
when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, when that occurred, this is what Ephesians says, when you hear the word of truth and you hear the gospel and you transfer your salvation and your comfort from the world and culture to Jesus, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit and you have a guaranteed inheritance until you acquire it. The seal is literally speaking of, think of back in the day, right? When a king would write a note and he'd give it to someone to deliver. The only way they knew not to mess with that letter was how? It had a signet ring seal of wax. This is the king's and it is punishable by death to open it. What the word is saying here is, your salvation is sealed. No one can open it till you get to heaven. Only the king's signet, only the king who died on the cross can open that envelope. How do I know that? Matthew 27, 66. All of these different places, the word is used, sealed. The tomb of Jesus was sealed shut with guards. So in one sense, the Spirit seals us shut inside of Christ. Romans chapter 4, verse 11 also uses the same word. Abraham's circumcision is called a sign and a seal of righteousness. The circumcision was a sign of authenticity. Revelation 7, 3, the seal of God was put on the forehead of God's servants to protect them from the wrath of come. For the wrath to come, the seal is also your protection against evil forces. This is what Jesus promises. You go, okay, this is a stupid picture, and it is. It's so stupid. It is so stupid. But this stupid picture, this stupid bubble boy movie, if you've never seen it, don't waste your time. <laughs> but this stupid picture shares with us the deeper reality of the promise of why we should follow after Jesus and we should be taught by him because he keeps us from unbelief. He keeps us sure for heaven. We carry upon every single one of us the authentic seal of his salvation and he's gonna guard us and protect us from the evil one until we get there. You know what that means? The ship of your salvation is already headed towards its destination. And my friends, you and I are promised to reach the port of eternity. Come on. I mean, these are the things you've gotta get into your heart and you've gotta get into your bones and you gotta let them give you life so that the voices of the world don't drag you into the pit of hell and away from your true identity in Jesus. So what do we do? Keep being students of Christ. Keep being students of his word. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me and let us pray? Lord, <clears throat> we thank you for the deep security we have in you. I pray, Lord, because of these promises, we would not be content to say that we're Christians. But, Lord, you'd press us into being true followers and disciples of you. We're in you. We're hidden in you. We're one with you. Lord, and you want to teach us your ways because your ways lead to life and your ways lead to peace and your ways lead to fruit and your ways lead to salvation, Lord. And like you, when you left this earth, we want to leave some things behind 
some of the same things you left behind. Lord, what did you leave behind? You left behind dedicated followers of Jesus. I pray that when we all leave this place, one day we can say we did the same. We left behind a testimony of God's grace and love to be carried for eternity. We trust you for this, Lord. May we leave encouraged and strengthened in you. In Jesus' name, amen.